What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. Imagine yourself in a doctor's office being told you have blank. That blank could be cancer or a rare condition or a life-threatening illness. Whatever the case might be, what happens after that statement typically involves a shift in identity. The free, otherwise independent person you once knew now becomes dependent on a system, dependent on treatments, and the identity of the diagnosis slowly creeps into your life. This is the topic we dive into today with Caroline Lee. She is actually joining us for the second time. She was here a few episodes ago talking about grief, specifically over a life that she once knew and adopting the new life after her diagnosis of four meningiomas. Her insights into this topic are extremely valuable. I know you'll find a value here, and I encourage you to share this episode with others who might be struggling with a recent diagnosis and finding their way. All right. I am so excited to do a follow-up episode with Caroline Lee, and I just want to first <laughs> acknowledge and apologize the fact that for our first episode, which was a couple episodes ago, I said, Carolyn, and we were just chatting and I was saying, it's so interesting because I usually default to Caroline and something talked me out of it. So I'm glad that we have this <laughs> second opportunity to fix that. It is Caroline Lee, and I am so honored and pleased to have her back. We had a really great conversation the first time. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, I highly encourage you to do that. I think it'll give you a good setup and background to her story, which we won't share necessarily again in the same detail but some of those parts might come up as we chat. But I think it'll set the tone for this as we dive a little bit deeper. We talked about chatting a little bit more about the change and shift in identity as we receive and sort of embody these um, medical diagnoses. And so I'm really excited to dive a little bit deeper. Thank you so much for being on again, Caroline, and thank you for the correction on the name. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on again. I'm really excited to be able to be here and, and share a little bit more with you and your audience. Thank you so, so much. Well, no need to repeat the same question that I asked at the beginning of each because <laughs> that was already asked. So if you want to know what Caroline um, thinks about the concept of true wellness, go to that initial episode because she dives into that question. I think we're just going to go ahead and get started. And honestly, in sort of preparation, not really, I'm always reading something, but as I ran across an article, I uh, saw a really great just short description paragraph, kind of just um, dialogue on the concept of this identity. So I'm going to read that and then we can kind of pick that apart and then dive in further into your thoughts. Okay. So in the European Journal of Cancer Care, there was a really great talk on this. It was actually entitled Identity and Psychological Ownership in Chronic Illness and Disease State. And in it, the author who himself was dealing with prostate cancer said, 
changes in how one perceives one's own identity are a function of the illness or disease states and are encountered continually in everyday life. Included in these changes are feelings of increased inadequacy and decreased value and influence in the community. Learning to live with a critical illness in particular involves a process of shifts in identity as the individual grapples with the changes in the sense of self that existed prior to the illness. Illness can dominate identity and permeate all aspects of life. So I just thought that was a really sort of deep and insightful paragraph to just start this episode off. So let's dive into your personal identity shift as you received your diagnosis and how that showed up in your life. Yeah, well, so, you know, for me, there were sort of two diagnoses and and we we talked about that in that first episode. Um, I think when I was originally diagnosed at 18 with my first tumor, um, I think that I was in a really privileged place because I was so young that it was really easy for me to just put on that emotional straitjacket and like embrace the diagnosis, but only to an extent. And so a lot of that meant, you know, I could flippantly talk about having a brain tumor, but it was very flippant. It was not authentic. And so it wasn't until 2016 when I learned about the other three brain tumors that I really think that is the shift that I can think of when a diagnosis took over my life Um, and it really took over my identity. And it made me question everything about my life. And especially at that point, since I already, you know, I had, I was already a mom of three small kids. My immediate thought was, what about them? And is this something that I've passed on to them unknowingly? Um, And how is this going to show up in their lives? And then later on throughout the year was, how do I talk to a six-year-old about the fact that I'm going to have radiation therapy and probably won't be able to play with him the way I normally would. And I'm not gonna show up the way I normally would. Um, And so my experience of that identity shift um, is really, I mean, I, I really just think that paragraph sums it up so well. There was no point of any day where my brain tumors didn't come up in my thoughts. Every decision I made was impacted by them or something tangentially related to them, whether it was I have you know, 14 different doctors at one hospital in Denver, Colorado, and I have to see every single one of them every year, or how many MRIs am I gonna have to have this year? And I think that, um, you know, especially as a, a brain tumor patient, and you know, I can't really speak to other chronic illnesses, but I do know that every doctor's visit or every test that was run was another time when I was confronted by this identity of being a patient. Um, And I think that's, I think that's one of the more difficult aspects of living with tumors or living with chronic illness is that if you begin to over identify with your diagnosis, every time you have to confront something or have an experience that's related to it, that's another time when that diagnosis is just reconfirmed and you re-identify with it. And so it's the shift away from that is really a difficult one. It's really sort of an uphill battle because you're constantly confronted with it. Mm. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. 100%. I mean, working, having worked on the other side of that and honestly having worked on both sides of it now and helping, you know, 
hand holding my patients through their own journey. Um, I've seen, I've seen it. I, you know, I see it. And I think that as healthcare professionals, at least from my standpoint, it was hard to see that, uh, you know, not having seen the other side or felt the other side or lived through the other side. And so I absolutely get that. And I don't know that I would have honestly got that as much, you know, a few years back when I was, when I was working in the trenches of, of the system. So I appreciate that we're having this discussion because I think it will give a voice to a lot of people who um, don't necessarily feel like they're able to share these kind of thoughts, even though they're having them, you know, you're giving a voice to what a lot of people are feeling, which I think is so, so important. And I love some of the the sort of lingo or, or words that you use, because I think that they are very symbolic. You know, you talk about privilege at feeling privileged at 18 and an emotional straitjacket. And I can see how somebody at that age, you know, um, we take a lot of things for granted at that age. We don't necessarily have dependence at that age, many of us. Mm-hmm. And so we don't necessarily think about the long-term consequences. Everything's very, you know, what's right now and not necessarily how it's impacting those around us. And so as we grow older and we have kids and, you know, then it's not only what's happening right now, but how is this also affecting and rippling through my family and how is this going to ripple through the years ahead of me? And so there's just a lot more dynamic there. And um, so I, I definitely can um, can sense all of that emotion as you as you discuss that. And I think it's a really important topic to discuss because as people go through their medical journey and they go to each appointment, there is a lot of check boxes and identity, you know, um, going through the motions such that you're, you're a me- you know, you feel like a medical record number, which kind of right. contributes to all of this as opposed to a person like, would my doctor even recognize me on the street, you know, mm-hmm. or am I just this medical record number on this paper because there's just so many others. So, so such a, such an important conversation to have. Um, I liked the part in this paragraph where it says included in these changes are feelings of increased inadequacy and decreased Mm. value and influence in the community. How does that Mm. resonate with you? And what does that statement mean to you? Yeah, I think that's actually a really important statement because I think that, um, you know, one of the things I've gotten really involved in in the last, you know, like year maybe um, is uh, disability awareness um, and understanding that as a culture, we usually view disability as uh, someone who's missing a limb or who is confined to a wheelchair or has some other physical disability that requires additional assistance. Um, in reality, though, disability shows up in a lot of different ways for different people. And in many cases, there's invisible disability. I am one of those people in that because of my brain tumors, I'm legally blind in my right eye and I have um, some visual issues with my left eye. On top of that, um, I, interestingly enough, have a condition that's called Charles Binet syndrome, which means that sometimes I have visual hallucinations, um, which thankfully are quite benign. You know, I I see butterflies and things like that. Um, But, you know, that point of the the paragraph really hit a good place for me because I, I sort of wanted to cheer at that point because I think that there's something to be said for those that are living with chronic illnesses and how they identify with being a, you know, with having a disability um, and what that means culturally. And I think that's probably the more significant part of that paragraph is that culturally, individuals who have disabilities are often viewed as being less than, 
And so able-bodied individuals have privilege there. And um, I mean, I don't think either one of us expected this to be a conversation about privilege, but I do think that this is sort of an important, important part because there's a lot of privilege in not having a chronic illness and not having a disability. And I know for me, um, when I finally started identifying as, okay, so I do have a disability, um, I do need additional assistance, there, there was definitely a process there in, you know, grieving the fact that, you know, I'm identifying as this, um, and also being able to accept that identity and accept that, that new space in my life and also find some courage and strength in it as well so that it was no longer something that felt like a hindrance. Um, and so I've become much more outspoken about disability. Um, I'm much more open about, you know, saying, you know, I can't actually see that. I need you to adjust for me. Um, so like, you know, my coworkers at work are really great about remembering, you know, if they want to show me something on their computer, there may be some adjustments that need to happen in order for me to actually see it. Um, and I think that it's really important for us to think about um, individuals who maybe it maybe it's not just chronic illness, but just some other disability, and the shift that's taking place for them internally, or maybe even the shift hasn't happened, but that they're really struggling internally with, you know, this um, the sense of self that the paragraph talks about, and sort of the inadequacy of it all, and feeling inadequate. Um, because the conversations that take place culturally around these things are, are often used in a way against people who um, have a form of disability or even people who just in general are struggling. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, what comes, I'm, I'm such a visual person. So I like what comes to mind as like a, a, you know, a graphic is as we go through our life and we have different stages of life, we go through, you know, when we start to apply for jobs, right. And on the application, mm -hmm. it'll say, you know, do you have a criminal history or do you have a disability? Are you unable right. to do certain tasks? And I feel like as we, and you know, when you start to check the age boxes, right. And so all of mm -hmm. these parts of our life start to like ingrain in us what we are, right? right? So, okay, now I'm that checkbox and now I'm that checkbox. Right. Now I'm in a different age group and now, yes, I do check disability. And so it's, it's like this concept of who we are is emphasized over and over and over again with mm -hmm. just the way, and not to say that employers are wrong for asking those questions, but it's just the, the little things in life that begin to ingrain in us and, and make us sort of embody this, this new identity. And um, as you talked about, you know, the workplace, I, I was thinking that, that, you know, I think that we spend so much time, many of us who work in a traditional job, you know, we spend so much time in a workplace. And so all of these things start to, you know, and, and some of the changes that need to be made or, you know, the shifts that have to be made in our workplace to help us do our work. If we do have what you, what you term an invisible disability, which I think is a great term because so many people are dealing with something. And if, even if we don't see it or there's no physical manifestation of it on the external, you know, there certainly could be internally um, and in that person's life. So it's really important to be cognizant and aware of that. But yeah, that's kind of what comes to mind is all of the ways that our society sort of emphasizes and validates our concept of this is my new identity. And in that sentence, when it says the decreased value and influence in the community, I think to some of my clients and even people that I've helped in a volunteer way that 
immediately very much like you feel a sense of, okay, but I, now I want to help others, you know, because I, and I feel like that's the, that's like our compensatory, you know, sort of innate human reaction is that I don't want to embody this as now I no longer can influence my community because of this. Now I want to turn it around and use it to influence. So is that kind of how you felt about, about your, your work and your shift and, and how you um, are verbal about this? Yeah. And I think a really big part of it too was understanding that there's, you know, we talked about this in the first episode, there, there's very little space to have difficult conversations. There's very little space about it. There's very little permission for it. Um, And, you know, speaking as a person with meningiomas, I hear this consistently from my community that they are consistently shut down, whether that's overtly or covertly. And I think that um, for me, really understanding what it was that I needed, you know, when I was 18 and then again in 2016, what did I really need at that time? And what I really needed was someone who was in the experience as well to some degree. Um, Cause you know, every meningioma is different. So the experiences are a little different, but just having somebody that I could talk to who understood what that space was like, what it was like to deal with diagnosis. And, you know, one of the things I think is really important to understand about diagnosis, almost regardless of the condition, is that in a lot of ways, that is a traumatizing experience for people. And having somebody to talk to about that, you know, there's, so I'm, I think I'm talking to like eight different patients right now, whether that's online or via text, who are all struggling with this, this initial phase, what happens after diagnosis. And what happens internally, because that that can really have pretty impacting ramifications across their life, um, and I think that for me, it it's no longer even really about like um, like a, it's not like about a, an, a mission in life really, um, but much more about like I know what it was like to be in that space, and if I can do anything to help somebody else who's in that space now that's what I'm going to do. Yes. And I think that's so powerful. And I'm so happy for those people who are in your path who you're able to help because um, I feel like it's very much like when I lost my dad, you know, it was like I was surrounded by people who had lost a parent and who got it. And not that that was, you know, to say that the other people who didn't necessarily get it weren't helpful to me too, but to be able to have somebody who can truly empathize is, is, um, you know, there's just no value you can put on that. And kind of going along with that, you know, now that you're, you're helping these people and I imagine, you know, they, these people aren't going to find that kind of, you know, empathy or assistance or understanding in the medical profession. How do you feel the healthcare profession could help patients sort of um, along this journey of this initial, you know, receiving of the diagnosis and then trying not to just become that diagnosis? How, How do you think that you know, or do you think maybe, maybe it's not intended for the healthcare profession to do this. Maybe it's intended for others like you to walk this journey with them, but what do you kind of see or even hope for, for this um, concept of embodying it and identity after a, you know, diagnosis? I actually, I love this question. And I, we received a question very similar to this when we did meningioma education day a couple of months ago. Um, I, I do think that there is a way for the medical community to to be more 
um, active, I guess, in this space. And I think one of the keys is um, making sure that they're bringing humanity into the room, meaning it's not a, it's not a number. This is not a number in front of you. This is a human um, who is dealing with a lot. And even without the diagnosis, right? We, we, everybody has a lot going on in their lives. And I think that learning how to actively practice compassion and empathy with your patients, you know, like I had a radiation oncologist who sat with me for like 30 minutes while I was, it was like the third or fourth week of radiation. And he just sat there with me while I cried. Um, and I wasn't really talking. I just was sitting there just crying very hard. And he just sat there and said, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. Not until you're ready. Mm-hmm. And I think that being able to bring that, that sense of humanity into the room is really important. I also think it's really important to learn how to, how to talk to your patients just about their life. You know, a lot of uh, physicians have little questionnaires that they run through or their nurse runs through or a tech runs through with the patient, which like it's sort of like a depression screener. Um, don't just rely on that. I mean, get that, that is just so basic and so surface level and really doesn't tap into what your patient is actually going through. And I think being able to hold space for that and actually hear what the patient is saying and then also be prepared with resources. Um, like my physicians are on the Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado, and um, there is a brain tumor support group that takes place once a month on campus. So for those physicians that work with patients with brain tumors, being able to say, listen, there is a brain tumor support group, um, it could be really beneficial, you know, maybe consider attending or being able to point to other support groups that may be um, online, like the Meningioma Mamas Facebook group, um, which is a a really valuable resource for for meningioma patients. Um, I think it's, I think for the medical community, it's really truly embracing the understanding that this is a person in front of you. And with that means this is a person who has a lot going on in their life and may have a lot of emotions right now that are really caught up in their diagnosis and they need somebody who can be present for that. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that the medical community as a whole gets trained on what that means and what that looks like. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, it makes me kind of think of the episode I recently did with Dr. Markham, who is actually an oncologist. And she talked mm-hmm. about, you know, and it was about bringing humanism back into medicine. And she yes. talked a lot about this and being with her patients. And it actually, again, I'm always like visualizing some analogy, but I, it makes me think of last night when I laid down with my son and he was stressing about exams because he's got exams this week. And, um, you know, and it would have been so easy for me to say, well, I've got, you know, a million other things to, you know, I've got to go put the cookies together for your teacher and, you know, I've got a million other things to do, but no, I'm going to choose to lay here with you and let's talk through this anxiety over your exams and how we can manage it. And, and, um, granted it, I, it is not the same as being in a busy medical practice and having, you know, 10 patients, you know, three hours, but, but what it does just show is that, just them taking the time with you to just sit and to just be and to say, I'm going to be here until you mm-hmm. don't need me to be here anymore. I mean, ha- that doesn't happen very often. So you're absolutely 100% blessed to have that. And I wish that there was more of that. And I do think that 
there's been sort of this trend towards, you know, we talked a little bit about this on, on the episode with Dr. Markham, and we have this, you know, what we call a soap note, which is like subjective, objective assessment and plan. And that's kind of an old mm-hmm. school template. And um, the subjective piece is what the patient is saying, right? And the objective piece is, is everything. It's all the objective data, the, your labs and your medical record number, and, you know, all of the sort of, I guess, identifiers, your diagnoses. And, you know, so much of, of, the medical profession is spent in that O part, the objective part. And we really need to get back to, as she mentioned, like the storytelling and the S and that, like you talked about not relying on the, you know, just sort of check boxes of any individual scale that you're trying to use to diagnose, you know, whatever it is, you know, depression or um, because it becomes very checkboxy and very tech focused and not human focused. And, um, and I think all of that contributes to, the continued emphasis and embodiment of the self becoming the diagnosis, because that's what we're taught when we go in, right? Like what we're taught right. to by all of these terms, you know, like you are, you know, here's, here's your sheet when you walk out and here's all the check boxes and here's your diagnosis. And, the, and you are those things as opposed to just being a person and having another person sit down with you and um, sharing a moment of humanity. So I, I appreciate that you um, have that advice. And I'm hoping that our listeners, if any of them are, are healthcare professionals in whatever form, um, just kind of hear that. I think, I think all of them, you know, a good majority of them, they're good people. They went into this to help people. They actually, I believe, I like to believe want to do that and are taught right. otherwise, you know, by the rigors of the system. And I've actually, I've heard that actually, like I've heard from different physicians about how, whether it was, you know, during residency or whatnot, how they were essentially chastised for displaying compassion or sympathy or, you know, quote unquote, spending too much time with a patient. Um, And I think that that, that's really unfortunate, but I also understand, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not ignorant of the fact that the way the medical model is set up at this point with the way our healthcare system works, there is a very big numbers game that's going on in the background that many patients don't see. And that numbers game to a degree has to be met. Um, And so I do understand that many physicians are overloaded with patients. Many physicians are trying to see as many patients at one time as possible. Um, But because of that, there there's very little space for that humanity and that S part that you were talking about. Um, And I also thought about this when you were talking about um, the questionnaire. One other thing about that that's problematic is, um, you know, if it's discussed, it's only because there, there's a big red flag on that questionnaire, right? Whether it's a patient who's saying like, I felt depressed every single day for the last two weeks. Um, because it's usually like a last two weeks kind of question. Um, but if a, a physician or a nurse, or if it's a tech, if, if they are not really familiar with the patient, like a patient could come in and let's say it's like a Likert scale of one to 10, one being major depressed and 10 being joyful at all times. If you have a patient who comes in and says, I've, I was about a seven for the last two weeks, that might seem fine. But if that's a patient who normally runs at a 10, always, that seven should be concerning. That seven should be, hey, let's talk about this. What's shifted in the last couple of weeks for you? Um, 
because we automatically assume that, you know, as long as it's above, and I don't know what it is, you know, within the medical model, but if we're assuming that anything above a four is fine and not problematic, you might just have a patient who's on a downward slope. And then what? Mm-hmm. Who's going to meet them when they've hit their three if you're not around to give them that questionnaire? Absolutely. No, I think this is such an important point to make because I do think that we get too involved in objective information and Mm -hmm. using what has been a defined diagnosis. And this is actually what I do a lot with my clients when we, when we look through their medical history and I start to see, okay, yeah, none of your, none of your labs are necessarily outside of range, but as I'm looking through the years, you know, maybe your platelets have gone from a 400, which is normal to, you know, a, a 250, which is also normal, but you know, but for you, and that's the whole mm-hmm. point is for you, right. this is a trend. And so why would we wait until it's a red flag? Why don't we start to look into what could be trending your platelets down, you know, or whatever the lab is that we're looking at. So, so yeah, I think it's such an important point to make that um, if we, if we did inject some more humanism into medicine and really start to to pay attention to this person and what is your baseline and what is your, you know, norm. And yeah, I don't care that it doesn't follow. And, you know, maybe this isn't going to result in a, in a technical diagnosis today, but it is going to result in me. And like you mentioned, wanting to arm you with some tools and resources, right? Either we right. do some more evaluation or, you know, if it is depression and if it is something that would be helped by a support group. And I do think that there are so many people now who are, putting resources out there, but it's hard for everybody to know where to act, where and how to access them. And right. so I do think it's so important for the profession to be able to arm their patients because they're the, you know, they're the stopping point. You know, if it doesn't happen there and they're not, you know, they don't find it on Facebook or, you know, in, in other parts of society, then who, who's going to be there for them? So I absolutely agree with all that. Let's chat a little bit about, without obviously any identification, some of the people that you're helping in some of their stories, maybe one that stands out. Um, I know you mentioned you're helping a few through that. What are some of the sort of, you know, pieces of stories that, that stand out of what you're hearing from others? Um, as it relates to their identity? Yeah. Is that, oh, um, I think the most consistent thing I hear is the use of the word shock. Mm-hmm. And what that's like, how that plays out in their life. Um, and so, you know, there's, I think it's pretty common for with when people are going through the shock phase after diagnosis, um, it's very common for people to really have days where getting out of bed is just really too difficult and all they can do is cry. Um, I think that's probably the most prevalent thing I hear. It's either that or it's completely numbed out. And and I, when I say completely numbed out, I mean like, you know, there's one thing to binge Netflix. There's another thing to binge it without knowing it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's like they've gone into a zombie state. Um, and so the and that's part of the reason why I talk about how um, you know diagnosis can can really be a traumatizing event for people because their response is typically one that's similar to a trauma response, and so they get stuck in their amygdala. Um, or they're just so overwhelmed and it's not just an emotional overwhelm, it's a physical overwhelm. And so, you know, there are people I've talked to who can't eat or if they can, they can't hold it down, um, or they can't sleep. And so they're literally pacing the halls of their homes all night long. Um, 
I think those are probably the most prevalent responses that I've seen and also responses I'm very familiar with. You know, those are the same ways that I, I sort of dealt with the shock um, afterwards. Um, and I think that there, again, it's one of those situations where it's really holding a ton of compassion um, and a lot of self-compassion and allowing yourself the space for that. Um, that's really crucial for the process. Mm, it's um, really interesting to hear. I think a lot of us take our health for granted and we don't realize what people are going through. And I think that it's a really important sort of descriptor to say it's one thing to binge out on Netflix and it's another to not even know you did. And I think right. that's I think people can relate to that just because a lot of people do binge on Netflix, but they could say the next day, you know, I, I right. finished three seasons of XYZ show um, versus somebody who doesn't even know what happened the day before. And because of, of the shock that they're experiencing. And I also think it's really interesting. And, um, you know, I feel like we could do a whole episode on just this concept, but we, there's a lot of talk about trauma. And mm-hmm. um, most of the time people relate that to, something traumatic in childhood, you know, whether it was abuse or not negating the importance of any of that, obviously that is trauma, you know, or, or it's maybe something, um, you know, that went a little bit later in life. Like maybe there was trauma from a, um, you know, an expert, like, let's say they were in the military and there was a, you know, PTSD type of a situation. So there's a lot of, I think, exposure and talk about trauma, which I think is great, but um, hearing you use the word trauma about receiving and processing and dealing with a diagnosis, I don't think that that gets enough attention. And I think that Mm. that can be traumatic and just the descriptors you're using of how people are symptomatically feeling that um, it certainly sounds like trauma. So um, is that a word that, that you're um, people that you're working with are using? Is that a word that you've kind of like, so tell me a little bit more about that concept. So I'm really cautious about um, imposing the word trauma on another patient only because, you know, from my perspective, trauma is something that really should be defined by the person who's experienced it. Um, and sometimes they need help in understanding that's what it is. But that's, it's not ultimately up to another person to truly define whether or not something was traumatizing for someone. Because I, I also know plenty of people who have received diagnoses that, that I mean, it literally was like, okay, fine. I got mm-hmm. this. I'm moving on. Like for me, being diagnosed with, with Charles Binet syndrome, that was not traumatizing to me. Although I know for some people that can be. Um, for me, it was much more of like, so now the part of my life that's different is that I am going to be able to say I'm essentially like a Dr. Gregory House patient, like off the TV show House, mm-hmm. because I know he used that diagnosis a couple times. Um, so I think it's really important that when we talk about trauma related to diagnoses, we're making sure that we're not imposing that on someone else, um, because it may be that they're just upset right now and they'll be fine in a week or two. And then for some, it may be, this is real trauma. Um, I think that what's important to remember is, um, you know, I, I think about um, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and how the author talks about trauma and how that, you know, really shows up. And one of the things that I think about when it comes to diagnoses and trauma is, um, I, I'm, the word snatch is coming to mind right now. So it's almost like, has your body been snatched from you? Has your life been snatched from you? And are you able to get it back? Um, 
and again, this goes back to the identity piece. And I think that um, for patients, what we often see is we see situations where um, they are unable to experience life beyond their diagnosis. Um, you know, I'm, I am a survivor of trauma from childhood trauma and then later um, sexual assault. And so I'm, I'm familiar with the trauma piece and I'm familiar with processing trauma. It took me a while though. And when I say a while, it probably took me a good year or so before I recognized my diagnosis in 2016 as really and true trauma in my life um, and what that meant to live with that because um, a diagnosis that's trauma is a, is a trauma that repeatedly shows up in your life. And so I know some patients who have said every time they have to get an MRI, it's re-traumatizing. Or every time they hear a physician talk about meningiomas as the best kind of brain tumor, it's traumatizing. And, um, and so I have talked to physicians about, you know, the importance of the humanity when they're, specifically when they're dealing with meningioma patients, because um, what they often don't, what the physicians often don't understand is the trauma experience of diagnosis. Um, so I sort of tangented there. I don't know if I answered your question fully. No, I don't. And this may have been just a totally selfish uh, tangent, but I actually appreciate that that line of thinking because it. Uh, I think it's a really important conversation to have. You know, in the medical world, the term trauma is usually used for, you know, like when a trauma comes into the hospital, it's typically mm -hmm. you know some type of a domestic violence. It's a shooting. It's a it's a it's a trauma. It's a car accident. You know, it's some type of a right traumatic, physical, um, immediate, imminent potential death. You know, that's what mm -hmm. trauma is. And I think that you um, using this verbiage in this way is really enlightening. And um, I think that it, um, you know, sort of reframes what we think has to happen for trauma to be defined that way. And I also appreciate the fact that you pointed out that it's not for us to determine what is traumatic. Um, obviously, in the instances that I just mentioned, a car accident, a shooting, a stabbing, right. horrible, th those are, I think, universally accepted as traumatic events. But I think that what we're talking about here, um, certainly there's a spectrum of what could be traumatic for one person and what isn't for another. And just an acknowledgement and validation of that by by others and the medical community, I think would be really valuable. And I, I can see how there's repeated, you know, traumatizing events that are not thought of as, I mean, for, can be right. for some people that are not thought of, you know, like going through another, another MRI, another CT with, you know, with contrast where you, you know, you, you feel like you're drowning in, you know, metal fluid and, you know, just all right. of these things that I think are just, you know, it's another test, you know, but to that right. person, it, um, it's, another moment of fear of what's going, what are the results going to be and what, you know, this right. whole process. So I really appreciate that, um, that conversation, even though, even if that was completely selfish on my part, cause I, I went <laughs> down a tangent, but I, I took you down with me. So yeah, no, that's <laughs> totally fine. Well, and one, one really quick thing too, cause I, I feel like this would, I'd be amiss if I didn't mention this. I think too, there's something to be said for, uh, sort of the tangential trauma that some caregivers go through as well. You know, when my husband and I met, you know, he already, you know, I was very 
I don't know, I, I was doing that flippant response of having a brain tumor because I was young and emotional straitjacket went not. So he knew that I had a brain tumor. Both of us had this understanding that all of that was in the past, that that wasn't going to be a thing in our life together. And so in 2016, when I got, when I learned about the other three tumors, you know, it wasn't just my life that was taken over. It was his as well. And then later, you know, going and, you know, he came with me to the appointment where we sat down with my radiation oncologist and planned out my radiation treatment. I think that was the day for him when things collapsed. Um, that was an incredibly hard experience for him. I, on the other hand, had already done that with one doctor before. And great, I was much younger, but I at least had some understanding of what I was going into. I'd already experienced it. For him, this was a whole different ball game, totally different experience. And I think that, and you know, God love him. He he's so great about reminding me these of these things. But I think too, when we're talking about patients and their diagnosis, there's often a community around them right? There's often a, a, a group, hopefully, of at least one or two people who can help them and really provide care for them. But those people are often having their own experience about what's going on. And sometimes for them, it's traumatizing mm -hmm. to watch a loved one go through things. You know, Eric had to pick up a lot of the slack around the house and um, really had to take care of a lot of stuff. We had my mom here to help too, but um, that emotional load was a very heavy burden for him. And I think that understanding that, that, that there are other people in the patient's life who, who may experience their own form of trauma, or if it's not trauma, at least real emotional distress. Mm -hmm. 100%. Obviously, I can say to that as I helped my dad, um, I remember all of the physical manifestations of my internal, you know, conflicts and feelings. And, you know, I was getting like cysts on the base of my fingers and on my neck. I mean, I was like a mess. I mean, I was going to acupuncturists yeah. just to, just to like, you know, and then, and then all of that subsided on its own. I mean, none of it required surgery. It was really just truly physical manifestations of what was, what was going on. And I think we do sometimes forget that, there is a community around and hopefully, you know, hopefully we mm -hmm. hope that people have a community of support around right. them. Some don't, which is unfortunate, but for those that do that community of support and, and certainly the immediate caregivers are, um, you know, they're, they're struggling in their own ways too, because it is, it is a lot to take on, especially when you feel relatively helpless. I mean, you can help the mm -hmm. day to day, but you can't, you know, we can't fix it. You know, we can't feed a person who's hungry. It's not that easy. You know, now we've got an internal um, condition, disease, illness that we can't fix. And so we feel like we're constantly putting band-aids on, which doesn't necessarily feel fulfilling to us. And then we're exhausted and there's a lot going on. Right. So um, yeah, I, I love that you pointed that out as well. As we kind of wrap up, what would you say, kind of just tying back into the identity shift and paradigm idea, what would you say um, some advice to those who are on the caregiver end or just the friend support, the external sort of the, you know, extended family of support? What are some things that they could do for people who are just receiving their friends, loved ones who are just receiving sort of a scary um, diagnosis? Um, what, what are things that they could do to help to, um, I guess, sort of not contribute, not emphasize the fact that this person is now that identity. Are there any, um, and maybe it's some of the advice that you give to the people that you're helping as well, but what are some things that you, I think a lot of people don't know what to do is really the, the right. key here is people don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They feel like, and a lot of them don't, 
so, so don't know that they just avoid because they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So they feel like they're going to screw everything up and don't do. So what's some of your pieces of advice? Um, I, I think it's, it's really still about hold, just holding space for that person to really like unload if they need to. Um, this is difficult though. I understand for caregivers who have their own emotional burden. And so I think that, um, I think it is about building community um, and building a community that allows that space and holds a lot of space for compassion for what everyone is going through. Um, It's really important that we understand that um, what most people need, regardless of what they're going through, is a space to really just be an and be present in whatever it is they're going through without judgment from others. Um, and so I think the biggest thing for that anyone can do for um, someone who's struggling with the diagnosis is really just hold space for that person, you know, ask how they're doing and really be comfortable sitting and listening and not trying to come up with, you know, platitudes or reminding them of how grateful they should be, but just saying like, yeah, this is really hard what you're going through is really awful. Um, and, and I can feel how hard this is for you. And just being with that and sitting with that, I think is really crucial. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we have so little, little of that. I think society kind of teaches us that we're not, you know, when we ask somebody, how are you doing? We want to hear back good or, you know, <laughs> wonderful. And so it's like, we don't, we aren't taught to hold space for somebody to say, it's not a good day today, you know, and then to just right. be able to just sit with that because we're not comfortable. We haven't been taught to be comfortable with that. So I think, you know, kind of just becoming comfortable with that is, is a, you know, act of service. It's an act of love. It's, you know, you know, we don't have to fix it, but Mm -hmm. nobody else is going to probably give them that space and time. So for us to be able to just do that is, is pretty valuable. So thank you so much, Caroline. I think that these conversations just um, are so important. And I, I hope that the listeners um, take some of these insights that you've had, that you've had personally, and that you've also helped other others through. And, um, you know, I feel like one conversation at a time, we might just uh, sort of shift the energy to um, be more helpful for others in, in these spaces. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate being able to, to sit here and share with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Minding Wellness Podcast. I so appreciate you continuing to follow us as we learn how to best mind our wellness. I appreciate Caroline coming on for the second time and sharing these valuable insights. If you appreciated or found value in this or any previous episodes, I would so greatly appreciate it if you would take a moment to review us on iTunes. It's another year and another decade. Happy New Year, Minding Wellness family. I so appreciate you and can't wait to see what this year brings us for continued insights from our community and those who have paved the way before us. If you are at all interested or curious about the three-month mastermind starting January 6th called Surrender Gym, hosted by yours truly and a few of my friends who are joining me as guest experts, you can head over to surrendergym.com. You're welcome to join us in this mastermind from any location as we will mostly be doing virtual 
learnings, events, and it will all be available as recordings if you don't catch any of it live. So lots of value and I can't wait to get that started and would love to have you if you're interested. Otherwise, I will see you here again next time.